Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, as Jerry mentioned, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 today. So if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, um, I'd invite you to go ahead and turn to that. Hebrews chapter 4. Well, my parents put me into kindergarten when I was only four years old. And so for much of my life, I had to get used to the idea of being the youngest person in the room. However, as the years go by, the times when I'm the the kid in the room happens less and less. Anyway, I'm going to date myself here a little bit. But um, I remember growing up in Lynchburg, Virginia, that something very strange happened on Sundays. Most of the stores were closed. I mean, you could still buy gas and groceries, but the stores that mattered to a kid, like Best Products or Roses or KB Toys. Does anybody even remember Best or Roses or KB, right? They were all closed on Sunday. So who here, do we have anybody in the room who's old enough to know why those stores were all closed on, on Sundays? Blue laws. Blue laws. The idea was that the culture should encourage people to take a Sabbath rest on Sunday. Now over the years, most blue laws have been repealed. We still see relics like the post office or the ABC store and a number of other things are closed on Sundays. But the main reason those stores were closed in the first place was because of words that we're going to find in our text today here in Hebrews 4. So we're going to venture into Hebrews 4 and it's a hard text. Pastor John Piper referred to these as Some of the most complicated verses in the whole Bible. So if you find this hard to follow as I'm reading it, you're in good company. But this is the Word of God, and Harvest Community Church doesn't skip over texts just because they're hard. So before I read, let's pray for the Spirit's help in this. Holy Spirit, you have inspired your word. It's a great gift to your church. But it's not all equally easy to, to understand. So Lord, I pray as we work through, uh, through this text today for your help, for me to explain with clarity, and for all of us to understand why you've given this text to us as a church. Help us, Lord, may your word find good soil to land in today. We pray through Jesus, our risen King. Amen. All right, so here we go. Romans, I'm sorry, Romans. Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, 
But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have obeyed enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when, a long time later, he spoke through David. As in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had, been, had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Here ends the reading. Now, this is the kind of text that I think a lot of us will run into on our way through a read the Bible in a year plan. And you get to the end of the text and you're like, what was that? And you, and you say, okay, my mind must have drifted for a minute. And you go back and you read it again. And you're still maybe not quite sure what it's getting at. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? This is a hard text. Hopefully over the next few minutes, we can make a little bit more sense of it. Now, normally, we tend to take a text like this and just start at the beginning and work our way through it. But today, I'm going to do things a little different. First, I want to deal right away with what I think is the most confusing part, which is verse 9 this uh, idea that there remains a Sabbath rest. This is where Christians get all twitchy, and I want to deal with it right away. Then Hebrews presents something of a timeline of rest in verses 3 to 11. It's a messy timeline because it's not even in order. We'll figure that out. And finally, the whole thing is wrapped up in how we should respond. Part of that at the beginning of the text and part at the end, and we'll We'll take that last. And hopefully by the time we get to the end, 
this genuinely hard text will make a little bit more sense. So let's do it. We're going to start off here with verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, Christians look at the Ten Commandments, and we see the Fourth Commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You can find that in Exodus 20. The Old Testament law has a lot to say about how Israel was to keep the Sabbath. And even some of the great creeds and confessions that came out of the Reformation insist that Christians are still obligated to keep the Sabbath. The Westminster Confession of Faith goes so far to say that if it's Sunday and you even think about your job, if you even think about a home repair you need, if you even think about going out and throwing a ball around with your kids, you are sinning against God. You are defiling the Sabbath. Sunday exists only for him. And a significant part of their argument is, go read Hebrews 4.9. It says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And sure enough, there it is. There's no translation issue. It says what it says. But I'd like to teach you an important principle here. I learned this from a teacher named Greg Kokel. And it goes like this. Never read a Bible verse. Now, we want you to read your Bible. That's not the point of the quote. The point is that Bible verses are not just floating around like fortune cookies. Every verse is in a paragraph. Every paragraph in a chapter. Every chapter in a book. Every book within the larger message of the Bible. We have to understand the context if we're going to understand the verse. So if we want to understand the context here, we don't have to go very far. I mean, let's just roll back to the verse right before this. Verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Now we'll look at this verse in a little bit more detail in a minute. But think about this. When Joshua led them led Israel into the promised land, was it so that they could finally have a Saturday on their calendar? They never had a Sabbath before, right? Joshua brings them in so they can have a Sabbath. Is that the rest that that Joshua was giving them? No. The rest that this whole text is talking about is not the fourth commandment. The idea that the whole argument switches when we get to verse 9, to suddenly be talking about Christian Sabbath and then abandons that subject to get back to what it was talking about before makes no sense. So we're going to look at this in just a second as we make our way through the the timeline in verse 3 to 11. But can I take about two minutes and and try to settle what a good Christian view of the Sabbath is going to be? I'll tell you what, I've almost every Christian that I've ever spoken to has questions about this. There is no New Testament text, not even one, that commands 
that a Christian practice Sabbath like in the Old, Te- Old Testament. There are a number of texts like Colossians 2.15 that says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regards to a religious festival or new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Don't let anybody judge you about how you observe the Sabbath. And looking at the text like this, the great reformer John Calvin said, Who but madmen cannot see what the apostle means? Christians are not obligated to keep the Sabbath in the same way Israel did. And instead, I think it's kind of the, kind of like tithing. Okay. In the Old Testament, an Israelite was expected to give 10% of his income to the Lord's work. As we come into the New Testament, instead of a fixed percentage like that, we're simply called to be generous. Our offerings reflect how valuable we see the gospel to be. If we see the gospel to be very valuable, we will give as much as we can to God's work as an expression of our love for Jesus and our gratitude for what he's done. And I think to understand the Sabbath, we need to realize it's exactly the same principle when it comes to how we spend our time. In the Old Testament, they had this specific law. One day in seven belongs to the Lord. As New Testament Christians, we're not under that law. Instead, our time becomes another kind of offering. Instead of being commanded to give God every Saturday or Sunday, right? We are now free to spend as much time with Him as we can. It's not a matter of how much time must I spend with God, but rather how much time can I spend? A heart that's in love with Jesus is always looking to find more time to spend with him. It's not a rule anymore. It's love. Sunday morning is a part of that that we gladly embrace because it's a chance to be with our brothers and sisters in celebrating together what God has done. But you know, you can also have morning devotions. You can have an evening prayer time. You can go out and give your time serving at a a crisis pregnancy center. Does this make sense? All right, so verse 9, the Sabbath rest that this text is talking about is not simply um, trying to lay the fourth commandment and Old Testament Sabbath observance on Christians. So we've seen what the text is not, so then what is it about? Okay, as I said, there's a timeline being drawn in the text. It's all about entering God's rest, right? In verse 1, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. Okay? We're going to look at five points on the timeline to see what this means. What does it mean to enter God's rest? The first point on the timeline is creation. This is in verses 3 to 4. Now... We who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. When the letter to the Hebrews was written, the Bible had not yet been divided into chapter and verse. He couldn't just say, Go look at Genesis 2.2, so he uses this funny way of referring to it. 
But the point is, on the seventh day of creation, it says God rested. And then there's never any mention in Genesis about God that day ending, about God's rest ending. God's creation is complete, and God has been resting from his work ever since that day. Now, Adam and Eve chose to sin, and their relationship and ultimately our relationship with God was broken. That God told Adam and Eve that life would be sweat and toil. That the ground was cursed because of their sin. And since then, all of us know that life is hard. How much do we hope for a chance to rest? We notice here an important hint at the beginning of verse 3. Those who believe enter God's rest. He contrasts those, he contrasts this with those from Psalm 95 that Jerry explained to us last week who did not enter God's rest because they did not believe. A lot of this message, a lot of this text is looking back at what Jerry taught us last week. It was really a very, very helpful message. If you didn't have a chance to hear it, it's out on YouTube. I would encourage you to check that one out. Okay, so we have this, this idea of creation. The second point on our timeline is the wilderness generation. The people that God brought out of, out of Egypt through the Red Sea grumbled at Massah and Meribah, as we heard last week. But then the real kicker happens in Numbers 13 and 14. Despite all of their whining, and they've done a lot of whining, God has still brought them to the edge of the promised land. And he's like, okay, guys, it's time to go in. You might remember this story. Moses sends some spies into the land to check it out. And they came back and they said, it's a great land, guys. But there's a problem. The land is full of giants and we're all going to die. And so the people refused to go into the promised land. They didn't trust God's word. And that was the last straw. And God said they would spend the rest of their lives wandering in the wilderness. They would never enter the promised land. And this was a picture of the greater truth that because of their, because of their faithlessness, they would never enter the ultimate rest that God has prepared for his people. We move on from the wilderness generation. The next thing, we have to, we're going to skip down to verse 8. It's the next point chronologically, but not the next point as the text reads. We get to Joshua's conquest. After that faithless generation had all died off in the wilderness, Joshua led the next generation into the promised land. And their conquest was successful. God had brought his people into the land. But Hebrews points out that this was not the ultimate rest that God had been talking about. How do we know that? Because the next point in our timeline, backing it up two verses now, verses 6 and 7, David's day. In verses 6 and 7, we see another reference to Psalm 95 that we heard so much of last week. Hebrews picks up on this reference to today. Right? This says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest... 
And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, the wilderness generation, God again set a certain day calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay. Hebrews is picking up on this word today. David is writing Psalm 95 about 400 years after Israel has been in the land. And yet through David, we hear God still calling the people to enter his rest. Therefore, the rest we're talking about could not simply be coming into the promised land. It couldn't be simply coming into the land of Canaan. The rest is something more, something that not even David, Israel's greatest king, had been able to give them. The people in David's day still needed to be called to enter God's rest. And the final point of the timeline is today. Now, this is present tense for the initial readers of this letter, but it's also present tense for us right now in Charlotte, North Carolina, in 2023. We get verse 9 again, and now we can see what it means. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from His. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For about 1,400 years, Israel had been observing the Sabbath every week. Every week, they rested from their labors. And it's as if God was telling them, friends, People, listen, rest is coming, rest is coming, rest is coming, rest is coming. But now, through Jesus, the rest is here. We can see what it is. On this side of glory, it's resting from any attempt to justify ourselves before God. It's resting from trying to prove our own goodness. And it's instead resting in the finished work of Christ. And we look forward to that day when, when we will finally be free from the labor and burden and illness of this life. And we enter God's rest forever. It's a good rest. It's a rest with no more tears. No more watching our bodies get old and break. No more watching the people you love wasting away under disease. No more newspapers filled with headlines of crime and disaster. You know who could tell us all about the Sabbath rest that God has in store for us? Thelma Barber could tell us about that rest. Dean Seidel could tell us about that rest. Jeff Keziah could tell us about that rest. How many faithful harvesters, how many faithful Christians through the centuries 
have gone before us and have entered God's true Sabbath rest. And if they could speak to us today, I think they would say something to us very much like what we see here in verse 11. Harvest. Make every effort to enter that rest. All right, one last thing before we move on from this. The promise of God's rest is certainly primarily looking at heaven. Does that mean there's no rest for us today? Perish the thought. Let me give you four texts that are each worth memorizing for this week. Isaiah 26.3 You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Perfect peace. That sounds kind of like resting from our worries, doesn't it? God says when we trust in him, we can have real peace in this life. We can rest. Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. In this life, is sleep not the most ideal rest we can get? Some of us, me included, have a hard time with sleep. And so this, this, a verse like this sometimes kind of lands with a thud. But even, even knowing how hard sleep can be sometimes, it's, the, it's what we want. It's the rest that we need. And I want you to think about times when you've been anxious for a minute, when something has been really on your heart. Are those the nights when you normally get a really good night of sleep? You wake up feeling all refreshed in the morning when you're feeling super anxious? Not likely. When we reflect on God's love for his people and his sovereign rule over all creation, our hearts can relax and we can hope for God's good gift of sweet sleep. Super familiar text, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God does not want us to be anxious, but in prayer, to turn to him with our concerns. He wants us to pray. And when we release our worries to God and replace our worries with thanksgiving, once again, we can have peace. We can have rest. And probably the closest text in the whole Bible to the message of Hebrews 4 today is Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Jesus speaking. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus sees your life. 
He sees you grinding at the corporate mill, trying to appease some corporate pharaoh who can't stop screaming, make more bricks. He sees you caring for your babies that won't remember a minute of it. Jesus sees everything that you struggle with. And what a different Lord he is. He is the Lord who doesn't crack the whip, demanding more and more from his people. He's the one who holds out rest. My friends, I would say, pick one of these verses, one of these, any one of them, and memorize it this week. Put words like these in your heart and in your mind. Think about the words and let your hearts cry out in prayer to the God who offers peace and rest to his people. Okay. Finally, our response. As we get to the end of our message today, how do we respond to a message like this? The timeline of rest here is surrounded before and after with some really sharp words of warning. So let's take a look at them. First, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the news they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The words translated be careful here might be fear if you're looking at a different translation. Um, In Greek, it's the word phobia. We are about to hear something that should maybe make us afraid, something that we should take seriously. There is a real possibility that we can hear the gospel and not receive its promises. There's a real possibility that we can hear the gospel over and over and over again and not receive its promises. Isn't that what it says? Right? Be careful that we don't fall short of God's promises. Don't be like Israel, which heard the good news, but it was of no value to them. Why not? Because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So what matters? Faith and obedience. Or as the old hymn goes, trust and obey. Anybody know this? Want to sing with me? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Any success with God has to start here. We believe God's promises are true. We believe God when He promises us rest. And since we believe that what He says is true, we obey His Word. Skipping down to verse 12. Right? We find maybe the Bible's greatest description of itself. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates 
even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is a terrible sword that chops up our excuses. It makes mincemeat of our mediocre meditations. If we really read the Bible, if we really take it seriously, it destroys our excuses. It kneecaps our pride. We can read the Bible and find so much comfort, like the verses I was suggesting you memorize. But let me ask you something. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or anything. Just think about this. When was the last time you opened your Bible and read and you said, wow, I'm wrong. I have to change. When is the last time you read God's word and you felt like it was chopping you up like a two-edged sword. For far too many of us, our Bible reading is limited to just reading a devotional that will point you to a happy verse every morning. Friends, let's read this verse one more time. The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If this verse is true, doesn't it seem like we ought to make reading the Word of God at least as important as breakfast? And then we come to verse 13. Remember the judgment. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's eyes, from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's a very sobering truth. God knows who we are. He knows who we really are deep down. Not who we dress ourselves up to be on Sunday morning. He knows the real us. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows where we have sins in our, that we have not yet put to death. He knows where we have compromised God's truth with the world's so-called wisdom. And at the final judgment, there will be nowhere to hide. There will be no excuses to hold up. There will be no popular TV shows to appeal to. Honestly, I find this one of the most terrifying verses in the whole Bible. And I want to see if I can help us understand this a bit. I'm going to draw, get our, a couple of our elders to come up and help me out. Sam, would you come up? And Jerry, and uh, where is Will? Is Will Cavanaugh still back here? Not in the room? Okay. Ryan, would you come up? <laughs> come on, buddy. <clears throat> Half our elders are out of town today. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> Ryan's a deacon, right? That's, that's, we'll, we'll make it work. All right, Stan, come on over here. Come on over here. Okay, so Stan, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of set up a, a timeline or a, 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 a graph of sorts. Stan, just need you to stand over here. Stan, you, today, you are going to play the role of Jesus. 
Okay. Well, you know what? I, I, who else would I pick for the job? <laughs> All right. Ryan, come on over here. Sorry, buddy. Ryan is going to, to stand here as the most despicable sinner in all of history. Okay? I, whatever you think of in terms of what would make someone horrible, the worst, uh, the worst combination of sins, the, the, the most vile sinner that's ever been, if you want, you can frown or something. That's accurate. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so we, we've got kind of a kind of a scale here. Do you see this? So over here we have God's standard of absolute perfection, rep, right in Jesus, represented by Stan, and Ryan is here, the single, the, the representing the single worst pile of sin that has ever lived. Right? I love you, Ryan. <laughs> I, I had to get somebody. All right. Now let's let's do a little thought experiment here. I've known Jerry for about 20 years. Friends, your your pastor is one of the best men I know. A godly man above reproach. Someone who is constantly seeking to give to glorify God, who calls out on him in prayer all the time. Your pastor is a good, good man. So we're gonna we're gonna get Jerry up here. So come on Jerry, let's take a walk. So we need to figure out where we're gonna put him here on this chart. I think Ryan's kinda lonely no. over there. Yeah, okay. So we need to figure out on the scale of God's perfection, right, at one end, and the worst sinner ever. Where do we put Jerry? And we're going to take a walk this way. We're going to take a walk this way. All right. Let's stand about right there. And I need to credit the inspiration for this from a... a, I saw R.C. Sproul do something like this a long time ago. Okay. I want you to look at this. And I want you to see that the distance that it, if, if we have the holiness that God requires, the distance between the worst sinner who's ever been and a good and righteous man, it's about one step. And so when we look at this and we see that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight and everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account, at one day in in judgment, the question would be if God were to look at this and say, Jerry, that was what I expected. That was the standard that I wanted you to live That was what my law demanded. And what excuse will he hold up? I did the best I could. It's not good enough. 
how can Jerry be saved? And this is the beauty, the beauty of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. In the most inconceivable trade of all time, Jesus comes over and says, Jerry, I will take all of your sin. Okay? And you can come over here and stand in my place as if you had my record. And now in the judgment, God can look at Jerry and say, My son, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, we might be, you might be looking and thinking, okay, that's good for Jerry. He's a, he's a great man. I can understand why Jesus would want to die for him. That is not the gospel. The gospel is this. Even Ryan here, the worst of all sinners, the one who should be the absolute most detestable thing in all of creation in God's eyes. If Ryan will put his hope in Jesus, Jesus says, Ryan, I can take your sin too. I will take your sin to the cross. Your sin will die the judgment that it deserved in my body, what we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. And you, for all of your filth, will have my holiness and my righteousness. Forgiveness is possible and real. This is our gospel hope. This is how we can see a verse here like verse 13. And not be absolutely terrified. Because we have hope that another will stand in our place. So that we will have the righteousness that God requires. Thank you brothers. I need you to realize heaven isn't where we just happen to end up. All dogs go to heaven is a nice slogan for uh, a Hallmark card or the Oprah channel, but it's not Christianity. Here's God's word for us today. God offers us rest. Let us be intentional about getting it. Let us be intentional. What does that look like? It looks like reading your Bible. 
It looks like trusting what God says. It looks like repenting of your sin. It looks like believing that your only hope in life and death is in the finished work of Jesus. It looks like obeying the Bible when it says that you're wrong and you need to change. It looks like refusing to compromise with the world when it says we must love what God hates. Intentionality All of this boils down to intentionally getting God's rest. It all comes back to what what we sang a couple minutes ago, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.